listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. On this Monday night, ever wonder what the best way is to remove a red wine stain from your clothing, pizza sauce, grass, you name it? What should you have in every laundry toolkit? Vinegar? Sure. But vodka? We get some very helpful tips from Patrick Richardson, better known as the Laundry Evangelist. Women reigned at the Grammy Awards in L.A. on Sunday night, with female artists taking all the major awards. It also featured some magical moments involving some Canadian women, including a performance by Joni Mitchell, her first ever at the Grammys, and a surprise appearance by Celine Dion. Eric Alper joins me to talk about all the highlights. Alberta Premier Daniel Smith was in Ottawa on Monday to open an Alberta office near the heart of the federal government, but she found herself defending a series of proposed policies on transgender youth introduced late last week. One of the organizations that's been critical of the plans is the Alberta Medical Association. The president of the AMA's pediatric section is with me to talk about their concerns. But first, a significant moment on Monday in the six-year battle for one woman for justice following allegations that she was sexually assaulted by several members of Canada's 2018 Men's World Junior Hockey Team in London, Ontario. The Chief of London's Police publicly apologized to the alleged victim and her family today. Chief Tai Trung issued the apology at a news conference in London hours after the case was heard in court for the first time. We find out just how much education junior hockey players get around issues such as consent, Do they need more? And what did we learn from what police in London had to say about the case on Monday? I think a lot of people were preparing for what was going to be said today in London. London police held a press conference today to at last uh, discuss what led them to press charges against five Former members of the men's world junior hockey team, the 2018 team, uh, specifically, it was such there was so much demand there they had to move it into the conference center in London. So it was a really big deal from the get go, though. And I've had a lot of experience with being at these sorts of things over the years. Ultimately, you don't learn much because the moment something is before the courts, police are somewhat limited in what they can talk about. But there were a few. Uh, key moments today as London's police chief, who wasn't the chief at the time of the initial investigation or the alleged defense, got up today and spoke to the media. Um, He, in fact, issued an apology. Uh, The chief of police publicly apologizing to the alleged victim, known only by the initials EM. Chief Tai Trong issued the apology at that news conference hours after the case was heard in court for the first time. Have a listen. I want to extend on behalf of the London Police Service, my sincerest apology to the victim, to her family, for the amount of time that it has taken to reach this point. Yeah, I mean, almost six years in this case. Five former members of Canada's 2018 World Junior Hockey Team weren't in London uh, in that courtroom this morning as their sexual assault case was put over to April the 30th. Neither were their lawyers who appeared via video. Uh, Dylan Dubé, Cal Foote, Alex Formanton, Carter Hart and Michael McLeod are all charged with sexual assault. McLeod is also facing a charge of sexual assault for being party to the offence. Now, of course, the investigation was initially closed in 2019 when Chief Trong says officers determined there were insufficient grounds to lay charges. A review of that investigation was ordered in 2022 when officers found new evidence. Uh, police say helped lead to those charges that we uh, heard about today. Here's Detective Sergeant Catherine Dan of London Police's uh, Sexual Assault and Child Abuse Unit. When the case was reopened in 2022, our team explored investigative opportunities in addition to the 2018 investigation. 
Those leads were followed, additional witnesses were spoken to, and we collected more evidence. I can confirm that some of this evidence was not available when the investigation concluded in 2019. Of course, there are a lot of questions about what exactly that means, what evidence, but of course, uh, Detective Sergeant Dan reminded reporters who couldn't get into the details of it because the case is before the courts. There were also many questions today about why that initial investigation was closed without charges being laid. And again, what new evidence came to light that allowed that to change now? Uh, as I mentioned, those questions were left unanswered. Joining me now is Nick Cake. He's a London criminal defense lawyer, a former Crown prosecutor as well. Nick, thanks for your time tonight. Oh, thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. Well, all eyes on this today. I mean, I think you, you would have known from your experience, we probably weren't going to hear a whole lot from London police today, given the uh, given the situation with the court case. But we did hear something. The apology to me seemed like a big step from the police service. I would agree with you on that one. I mean, to open up with what seemed to be a very heartfelt apology kind of took me a little bit by surprise, because ultimately I think what that was was the police showing their hand a little bit and giving perhaps the defense lawyers in this case something to work with. And that is maybe there was something that happened within the investigation at the hands of the police that caused the investigation originally to be derailed. And potentially that error, if it was an error, could be exposed and again, give defense counsel something different to to argue because a lot of times you know, in a criminal case, you're, you're dealing with the, the credibility of the witnesses, not necessarily perhaps the, uh, the nature and how the investigation took place. Yeah, there were a lot of questions, as you would have expected today, about what exactly had changed between 2019 when this case was uh, dropped officially. I mean, it was concluded without charges being filed, and then the review, and then the 2022 uh, that began in 2022, and now the decision to file charges. Um, from your perspective as a former Crown prosecutor, is it entirely valid for police not to discuss that at all? It seems to me they have a bit of leeway, but they were being very cautious today. I think that it's in, it's important for the police not to discuss it because ultimately, once the matter's in court, it's essentially out of the police's hands and it's in the hands of the Crown prosecutors. So I think it would be inappropriate for the police to comment on something that they no longer control because they don't want to be the ones that maybe cause problems uh, for, for the Crown's case. So I appreciate why they did that and, and you know, wearing my my crown attorney hat, I'm, I would be thankful that they didn't do it. Of course, wearing my criminal defense lawyer hat or perhaps even my member of the public hat, certainly I want to know what those new developments were or why it was closed in 19 and opened again in 22. But ultimately, I think we'll find out. Yeah, there was mention today that new evidence was uncovered. Uh, it's, it's hard to figure out what that evidence could have been, but uh, any guesses? No. I mean, we could sit here and we could speculate as to what it was. Um, it could be maybe somebody else had a change of heart. You know, when we look at the civil settlement that was gathered and the news that broke around that, we know that there were more than five players in that room. Maybe one of the other individuals had a change of heart. Maybe there was a new cell phone that came to light that was able to be downloaded. Perhaps then there's new text messages 
maybe a new video came to light as well. I mean, we could probably fill the next hour speculating, but clearly whatever it was played a large part in that pin dropping and the crown getting, sorry, the police getting to their reasonable grounds. It was interesting to note how often police today noted that this was one investigation. This wasn't two investigations, one that ended in 2019 and then started up again in 2022, that this was actually one investigation that they built off what was done back then uh, to lay the charges now. Yes, they were very much able to say that a lot and very willing to let everyone know that this was one investigation. I mean... It doesn't sound like one investigation because it was clear that the case was closed in 2019. And in my opinion, when you close a case in 2019 or or whenever you close that case, that investigation is done. And then they reopen the case after the independent review and after new evidence comes to light, which likely was the product of an investigation that was sparked by the independent review. In my opinion, this sounds like two investigations, but calling it one sounds a bit better. Right. It also allows them not to talk about what might or might not have happened back in 2019, which I suspect is is a very... Tell me a bit about how delicate that will be given what we're... I mean, this is now a court process. So yeah, you mentioned you, have, you can wear both these hats as a former prosecutor and as a defense lawyer. Why would the police be treading so carefully not, not to talk about this in any way, shape or form that may, um, you know, that may impugn the, the, the first investigation? Well, but I think it comes down to covering their own butts, so to speak, Mm. in that um, I'm not saying that there was a mistake made by the police, but if it comes out that there was, and that was the reason perhaps for this taking six years, then there might be an argument to be made for some type of lawsuit against the London City Police. And so... I think that's why they don't want to call anything in the question, because I'm sure that their lawyers have given them advice on what to say at these press conferences in order to ensure that they try to um, you know, distance themselves from, from potentially civil wrongdoing. They would have worked, I mean, this kind of goes without saying, but they would have worked ex- very closely with the prosecution, with, with Crown attorneys, heading through all these steps that eventually led to these charges being laid, and even until today. Well, I don't necessarily know if that's the case. Mm. I mean, certainly the Crown Attorney has a role sometimes in an investigation, in an advisory capacity. But it's not often that the Crown embeds themselves within an investigation. And, you know, you might get uh, some Crown advice on how to handle maybe a certain type of uh, interceptive communication. Or you might get some crown advice on, hey, what do you think I need here uh, if I'm the police? You know, what do you think I need to, to get a warrant? But it's not commonplace for the crown to sit down and say, go interview that person. Next time you talk to someone about this particular topic, make sure you cover off this topic in that conversation. 
that's just not commonplace in, in, in our judicial system because there is that separation between the police who investigate and then the Crown attorneys who prosecute. And it's that right. separate form of checks and balances, I think, that legitimizes our system somewhat as well. Right. I think most listeners would recognize those exact terms from something like law and order, for instance, right? I mean, we understand I, that, I may, that concept. <laughs> I may have been stealing those words directly from one of the greatest shows on TV, yeah. Cake is with us this half hour. He's a criminal defense lawyer in London, Ontario, former Crown Prosecutor. We're talking about uh, London Police holding a press conference today to discuss the charges laid against five former members of Canada's 2018 World Men's Junior Hockey Team, four of whom were playing in their NHL until recently. One was in Switzerland. Dylan Dubé, Cal Foot, Alex Formanton, Carter Hart, Michael McLeod. Um, Nick, when you look at what happens now, I guess some of the big questions are, are they all, are they all going to be tried together, judge or jury? I guess there are quite a few questions about what the court process might look like once it gets underway officially. Well, it's underway officially, right? We had the first court today. I believe the matter was adjourned until April 30th, back into a a case management style court. But to answer at least one of those questions, Ben, uh, they are co-accused. They are on uh, the same information. Therefore, as it stands right now, uh, a trial, if a trial happens, if everyone pleads not guilty, a trial would take place with all five of them standing trial at the same time. Whether that takes place in front of a judge alone, whether that takes place in front of a judge alone in the superior court, or whether that takes place in front of a judge and jury will obviously be left up to those individuals and their lawyers and the plan that they come, uh, they come up with. How difficult will this case, I mean, what do you envision for this case, considering that all these players have, seems like, teams of lawyers? I mean, it feels like this one could be quite the lengthy process. Well, certainly, the number of accused individuals standing trial at the same time, that's going to increase the time that a trial is going to take, because each lawyer is going to be representing their client's interest above anything else. And so client, or sorry, accused number one, their lawyer is likely to have a whole list of questions different on, let's say, cross-examination of the complainant as compared to accused number two's lawyer. Um, But that's what happens when we try people together. Ultimately, of course, the Crown likely opted to try all these individuals together to cut down the trauma on the complainant of having to, let's say, testify five separate times at five separate trials, but also to shore up any weaknesses that may come in their case by eliminating the potential for any prior inconsistent statements as well. Right. I I suspect disclosure of evidence has already begun uh, from, from the Crown. I would imagine that it has. I would be surprised if it hasn't, given the fact that this investigation took six years. I would assume that there is a whole bulk of evidence that has been, you know, sitting in a banker's box somewhere in either a police storage room or a Crown Attorney storage room as it relates to that original investigation that ought to be ready to go out right away. But often what we see in cases such as this, Ben, is that disclosure comes in waves. So, you know, the lawyers will get set one and then maybe a week or a month later, maybe set two. Maybe there'll be some evidence that 
the Crown has possession of, but it needs to be litigated as to whether or not it can be disclosed, given uh, the variety of special rules that surround sexual assault uh, trials. So there's probably lots of it. I assume some of it is ready, but not all of it may go out right away. And in fact, some of it may not go out until if and when a judge says, send it. Right. Well, they're back in court on April the 30th. Nick, thanks so much for your time tonight. No problem at all. You take care. Talking about uh, the chief of police in London today apologizing to the woman at the center of a sexual assault case against five former members of Canada's 2018 World Junior Hockey Team. Ty Trung says he's sorry for how long it took to lay charges in the case stemming from that incident back in 2018. Um, They provided an update on the investigation today. He said the delay in filing the charges and the length of the time the accused were given to surrender to police had nothing to do with the fact that they are high-profile professional hockey players. To me, this is an investigation that involves a victim. I truly, I'm not a hockey player. I, I don't know nothing about hockey. This is a sexual assault investigation. Perhaps, but hockey is a big part of this too. The case and how it was handled both by London police who initially fielded the complaint and decided not to file charges in 2019 to Hockey Canada who settled a massive lawsuit with the victim out of court. Uh, Even the NHL launched its own investigation into this one that's complete, but the details aren't being shared while the legal proceedings are underway. As for any problem with the culture around sexual violence and consent in hockey, NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman said on Friday, no way. I think any characterization that this is a systemic issue is both inaccurate and unfair. 99.9% of players, certainly in our league, conduct themselves appropriately. Uh, Hockey players and hockey families throughout our ecosystem, throughout the world at all levels, overwhelmingly conduct themselves appropriately. But how would he know? What's he basing that on? 99.9% of players. That's a big number. I I mean, honestly, I don't think Gary Bettman has any idea what he's talking about. He rarely does when it comes to these kinds of things, thinking more about the league than what's actually going on here. Truth is, the NHL and Hockey Canada pay scant attention often to the notions of consent and things like that, behavior by players outside the game. And, you know, of course, they're concerned about the game. As you may suspect, junior hockey has programs in place to educate players about sexual violence, gender, and issues such as consent. In the OHL, the Ontario Hockey League, that program is called Onside. It was launched back in 2016, well before the events that unfolded in London in 2018. Two of the five accused in this case would have been in the OHL at that time. The other three were in the Western Hockey League. One of the organizations called in to help develop that Onside program was the Sexual Assault Support Center of the Waterloo Region, because they had expertise in this, as well as something called a Male Allies Program. Surprisingly, uh, they'll tell you that, uh, you know, the Canadian Hockey League, the OHL, many teams just don't spend a lot of time or money on this. Maybe they should. Jacob uh, Priest is the project facilitator with the Male Allies Program at the Sexual Assault Support Center of Waterloo Region, and he joins me now. Jacob, thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. I mean, without talking about this case specifically, it certainly has shed some light on something that we've been talking about for a very long time. Uh, but how did uh, how did your organization come to be involved with the OHL, and what is it that you brought to the table? Because obviously, uh, you had a program in place that uh, they were very interested in. Yeah, um, I mean, we're um, as a sexual assault center, we're we're fairly different than a lot of others, as we've been working with men in violence prevention for a long time. Uh, we started doing that in in two thousand eight. We just saw the number of survivors that were coming in. 
and recognized that we needed to, you know, do something, go upstream and, and find out where, where, you know, all this stuff is happening and, and address the, the violence so that we would have less survivors. And through that, we started working with uh, sports teams. And eventually, yeah, in 2016, we started uh, a program with the OHL. Uh, we worked with the Kawartha Sexual Assault Center to develop the curriculum and sort of rolled it out then. We really, in, you know, have great opportunity to, to talk to athletes, get in there and have some really important conversations with young men. Tell me a bit about the approach then. Uh, what, uh, what do you try? I know you don't have tons of time, but you have some time. So how much time do you get and what do you try to, what do you try to bring home? What message are you trying to deliver to them when you meet them? Yeah, I mean, it, the, one of the challenges we face is that we don't get a lot of time. It's a single session, one and a half hours, um, which is not really enough time to sort of unpack a lot of the negative messaging that folks get around things like consent in you know in the world. So um, we, we get about yeah an hour and a half once a year with uh, with teams uh, to run through sort of a lot of content. Uh, and so, and, and we want to make it as sort of engaging and interactive as possible because we know, you know, people learn better that way. Uh, so really what we do is is focus on what do healthy relationships look like and what does healthy masculinity look like? And that's sort of the start, we would hope, uh, of a conversation with these players that, you know, would expand. Um, we do, you know, touch very briefly on things like consent. And then we do invite our teams to sort of invite us back to, to have more conversations um, about things like consent and, and how to stop harm when we're seeing it. Yeah. Do you get those invites back often? Not as often as we would like. Um, you know, I, I work locally here in, in Kitchener-Waterloo, and we've had a, a great relationship with the Kitchener Rangers here. And, and last year, they did invite us back for for two subsequent sessions, uh, which is really great because unpacking consent, what that looks like, what it means, how to practice it, does take, you know, a fair amount of time. It, you know, and so having a full session where we can talk just about consent um, and then having another full session where we can talk just about uh, bystander intervention and, and you know what to do when you see harm um, is really important because a lot of harm happens and we don't even realize it. You know, in in sports, there's still a lot of hazing going on, and right. those kinds of conversations are applicable there too because it's the same underlying issue with hazing as there as it is with sexual violence. It's you know ignoring consent, not taking no for an answer, pushing people to do things they don't want to do, coercing them to do things they don't want to do. And I mean, unfortunately, sometimes there's overlap where hazing becomes sexual violence as well. And we saw that a few years ago uh, with the St. Mike's uh, incident here in, yes. in uh, Toronto. Yeah, right. And of course, then there's a silence that's enforced as well after it, which is all part and parcel of the same thing. What do you find the big challenges are then? I mean, I know you work with other uh, men, other young men. What do you find the challenges are when it comes to hockey specifically? Yeah, I think the culture of silence is a, is a big piece. A lot of players feel a lot of pressure to not speak out about things because you know in the past maybe when people did that they would you know get less ice time uh, they would they would be played less players found that if they talked about things that were happening behind closed doors um, that it might impact their career or at least there was a fear that it would impact their career in some way and there's a, there's a big sort of culture of silence that does exist but you know overall i think talking to players that the players are actually really hungry for these conversations they really want to have them Every time I talk to players, their their number one concern is, you know, they don't want to be falsely accused of sexually assaulting someone. And the best way for players to, you know, not be falsely accused is by having a really solid understanding of what consent is. And I think, you know, one of the big challenges is that most players have never had the in-depth conversations they need to have. You know, we're fortunate to be able to work with Hockey Canada for about a year after all these allegations came out. And uh, we got to do some training with uh, the national junior teams. And, you know, we would ask players, what, 
how, or how many of you had ever done a workshop on consent with your hockey team? And more than 70% of them said that they've never done a workshop with their hockey team. So they're just not getting that education. One and a half hours is, is not enough to sort of undo all of the stuff that folks are learning online. There's a lot of negative sort of perceptions of what consent needs to look like uh, on the internet where, you know, where people are getting their, their uh, sexual education is often coming from sources that don't prioritize the conversations about consent. So guys don't learn how to do that. And then they end up in situations where, you know, either they're making mistakes or doing things that, that, you know, they shouldn't be doing because they don't have the skills, the knowledge or, or an understanding of why what they're doing is harmful. Right. And, and of course, they find themselves in a unique situation to some extent because they are uh, popular as young men, right? Yeah. I mean, they do have, I don't want to say opportunities, but they have things present themselves to them where they would have to be very aware of what consent looks like um, and where that line is. There's a lot of light shed on them. They, you know, they're seen as leaders in the community. And then, yeah, lots of opportunities are presented to them, you know, both with, with travel and being in different communities. They, they get to meet new people. But, they, yeah, they don't necessarily have a, a good, strong sense of why certain behaviors may be harmful. One of the things that often comes up in my conversations with, with these young men is not understanding that things like street harassment, uh, which we often call catcalling, mm -hmm. why that might be harmful and, and why, you know, their intent may be to compliment somebody, but the impact may be very different. Um, and, I, you know, I've had guys come to multiple workshops with me and, you know, even after several workshops still be like, I'm just not getting why that's a harmful thing. Right. Uh, and so it, it, it does take a lot of time to sort of get into the depth of, of why certain things which are seen as very normal in our society um, maybe are actually harmful. So, yeah, lots of time to unpack that stuff. Yeah. Has there been, have you, I mean, you, you spoke about working with Hockey Canada in the aftermath of these charges or of these of these allegations, rather. Mm -hmm. uh, have you noticed a shift at all since all this started to unfold in front of us over the last few years? Oh, absolutely. A, a lot more people are interested in having these conversations. We've we've heard from many more hockey teams, sports teams, uh, sports leagues across the province and, and actually across the country. And we've actually been really grateful. Uh, we our, our local OHL team did uh, give us a grant to be able to sort of take our our sports program, which is called Leading by Example. And, you know, that's normally run for folks 16, 17 and older. Um, but, you know, there was a recognition that we really wanted to talk to younger players as well. So right now we're actually currently running a pilot project thanks to the Kitchener Rangers and the Rangers Reach Foundation to uh, pilot these kinds of workshops, but with players who are, you know, around 13 years of old of age. So that we hope, you know, those guys are having those conversations earlier. The, the biggest challenge that we face in, in getting this stuff out there is a lack of investment by the, the organizations that are benefiting from these hockey players and the work they're doing. You know, we're really lucky at our center. We have several full-time educators. Most of the centers like ours across the country don't. And so that means there's all sorts of young guys, uh, young women um, who are not getting a, a good education around, you know, what consent is and what it isn't. And I think one of the things that Hockey Canada and the NHL could have done to really shift culture is invest in education of their players, put forward and champion education so that everybody, every minor hockey player in the country is going through effective workshops multiple times a year where they can actually unpack some of this stuff. And I think ultimately that's what what's needed. I mean, we heard that in the, the press conference today. Chief of Police in London saying, you know, well, there's these big issues, but we can't solve it. And I was like, well, there there are solutions. It's just that, you know, while, you know, NHL and Hockey Canada are, are bringing in millions of dollars in sponsors and sponsors and revenue, they're not actually investing in their players enough 
to, to ensure that they're not making those mistakes moving forward. That's an excellent point. Jacob, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much, Ben. Cape Breton's an awesome place, but we seem to only head there when the awful when they have awful, awful weather, call it historical storms, hit. It was Hurricane Fiona back in September of 2022. That was wind, rain, flooding, more. This time it's snow, lots and lots and lots of snow. I don't know if you've seen the pictures. It is just like a mountain of new snow. It's thought that more than 100 centimeters or 40 inches has fallen in some places in Cape Breton since Friday. Uh, a local state of emergency re- remains in effect in parts of Cape Breton. Uh, they're not alone. Much of Nova Scotia is digging out from one of the worst snowstorms in 20 years. Uh, apparently, uh, this low pressure system parked itself off the east coast of the province on Friday and just didn't move until this morning. And there could be more as well before it's all said and done. So joining me now from snowy Cape Breton is Cape Breton's regional municipality mayor amanda mcdougall amanda thanks for your time it's too bad we always have to talk in such crazy unfortunate situations thank you no i'm hearing that a lot uh people are saying we have to stop meeting under these circumstances (laughs) it was it was rain last it was sort of it was wind and then rain and then it's it's hard to imagine i mean i think i grew up in montreal so i've seen my fair share of blizzards over the years but wow that is a lot of snow How, how how would you describe it um, interestingly enough, yesterday, I feel like when I woke up, quiet, absolutely quiet. It shut everything down. There is so much snow that our plows are getting stuck. So the plows are getting stuck. I mean, just to picture it, because I kept seeing sort of bridge height snow and I'm trying to imagine, well, what would that be? So, yeah. so even, in, even you're at home, obviously, even where you are, just how high is that snow? Well, I'm looking out the window right now and uh, my neighbor's house is two stories and the snow drift is halfway up their house. So, yeah, it's a full story. Closer to my house, you know, in this little valley, there's very little snow on this side of the house, but the other side is completely covered. So you could tell where the wind was blowing, right? right. Um, it's a lot of snow. And then last night, unfortunately, unfortunately, there was precipitation um, compounding that. So it's so heavy. My poor husband's been out all day trying to chip away at our driveway. But... You know, I'm 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 calling contractors with front loaders because that's the only way we can get the snow out the end of our driveway. And if you look at the end of our driveway, you can see if there is a car that goes by, barely the roof of it. Oh wow! Yeah, so that's where we're at. Everybody is stuck. Just the amount of snow that fell. It, it, it's that's it felt like it was never ending. Just looking at the forecast, like you had this thing settle over you, and it just never it didn't go away for hours upon hours upon hours. Well, I'll tell you, halfway through. I think that was the most daunting time because when you're looking at your patio door and like the snow has accumulated to halfway up that door and then you're hearing the forecast saying, okay, we're halfway through. And I'm like, what, how much more can we take? And uh, yeah, this has really shut everything down. It's um, it's proving to be so difficult. You declare, I mean, just, you know, obviously the, the novelty of it aside, this is also, it can be, a, as we well know, a dangerous situation, even for a population that is well used to a blizzard. Um, what are your main concerns right now about just the state of things out there? Yeah, there's a couple things. So first and foremost, we you mentioned the state of local emergency. So we declared that in order to limit travel, people love storm watching, and it was proving to be a bit problematic. So Cars would be getting stuck in snow-ridden roads, um, not being able to get a tow truck to come remove that car. Therefore, that car is now abandoned and is now a hazard, Uh, a hazard to first responders, a hazard to snow removal. I heard tell of a story, actually, one car that was abandoned was ultimately covered in snow, 
and the plow that was going through didn't see it and hit the car. So right. yeah, needed to limit non-essential travel, uh, needed the ability to kind of um, skirt our uh, procurement rules a little bit and say, hey, anybody and everybody who's got some machinery, we need you. Yeah, I imagine there's other, I mean, just emergency services must be deeply affected by this. So just your your everyday medical emergencies, the usual stuff. Uh, police, it, police had 532 calls yesterday. Wow. For a population of 100,000 people. Well, police too, ambulances, like every, every all emergency services are going to be struggling to get around, right? No doubt. Yeah, and it's it's happening. So when people do have a, a moment of, of health emergency uh, and need an ambulance, um, we have to deploy a plow. So... In addition to being worried about human beings in their homes right now, because there are many people that are isolated and stranded, they might not have the ability to go outside. It could be a, you know, a, a single senior who has their own medical conditions and can't go out and lift this heavy, heavy snow. They are trapped in their house right now. There are financial barriers to snow removal. It's very expensive. Part of our state of local emergency, though, does allow us to intervene and say, you are not allowed to price gouge during a time of emergency. So trying to keep that at bay. I mean, people are panicked. It's been a number of days. They're stuck inside. Nothing is open um, and they literally can't go anywhere. So trying to keep people's emotions um, in check as well. What about concerns over stuff like, I mean, this is different, but structure damage and so on. I suppose this is all oh, stuff yeah. you'll have to look at after the fact. Yeah, no, I actually, um, I had the opportunity to speak to the Prime Minister yesterday and uh, and reminded him that, you know, during Fiona, people's homes, people's buildings, people's businesses um, suffered extreme damage because of the wind and rain. And snow has that same ability. It's heavy. And there are so many, again, I keep looking outside at the houses down the road here. There are so many roofs with so much snow on them. There was a, a store just down the road for me. It's called Busy Bee that had kind of a an awning, I guess, built into the building. And that snow was too heavy and it just tore it right off the front. So very real concerns as well. We're not hearing a lot about that structural damage at this point. People are more focused on how the heck am I getting out of my house? Yeah. And I suspect you mentioned, Fiona, there must still be some residual damage from that. Not everything's been rebuilt yet, right? So it's, oh, it's, gosh, sens no. it's sensitive to that kind of snow weight that you're getting. Yeah. And let's talk about insurance, right? So oh, people who yeah. experienced damage to their properties from Fiona are reeling with insurance companies um, still trying to get their houses fixed. And imagine compounding that with damage from whatever the snowmageddon is. Yeah. Yeah. What's the forecast I saw was maybe some more snow, but maybe not a lot more snow at this point. Kind of the, the worst of it is past, but you still could get some more. I'm trying not to listen to the, to the no, I'm joking. <laughs> no, I did see somewhere between 10 and 15 and I don't know. It's funny because I'm like, I'm 10 and 50, no big deal. We got under 50. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think long range, we're looking okay. Uh, there could be some more flurries and I know that's going to cause more panic too. People are going to get worried. Oh my God, is this ever going to end? Yeah. Well, Amanda, as always, uh, our best wishes to you, to the community. I know this is yet another challenge that you're going through. I know you're, I know you're a resilient spot, and this won't uh, won't beat you down. But wow, that's a lot of weather in a short period of time. Well, as my council colleagues today said, can we please stop with the historic events during our term, Mayor? And I said I will definitely try. I'm sure you have a place somewhere in your house, somewhere convenient, where you throw clothes that you've worn but aren't dirty enough for the wash. It's often lovingly called 
the laundry chair, but it can be the laundry bed in the spare room, the laundry sofa, the laundry futon, the laundry little corner of the floor, you name it, right? It's just a place where you put things that are in laundry limbo. This all came up because I read this really interesting article in the Washington Post about laundry chairs. Why do we have them? What are they? Why do we insist on keeping them? Why can't we just decide? Um, and lots of people sort of had uh, views on how it works. But according to my next guest, that limbo is a pretty good thing for your clothes. First of all, we don't need to wash everything every time we wear it. It's also, I mean, it's bad for your clothing. It's also bad for the environment in many ways. Um, he's also known as the laundry evangelist. So he knows he's written books on laundry. I was fascinated by this because, you know, we all cook and we all do groceries. We talk about that stuff all the time, but we also all do laundry all the time. Now, I'm sure there's lots out there on YouTube and TikTok, little advice things and so on, but I hadn't come across a lot of people who are sort of experts on this stuff, who'd written books about it, who sort of stand by it, who are known for their both their expertise and their love, not necessarily a love of laundry, but certainly a passion for doing it properly. Now, of course, everyone has their own way of doing laundry, and some can be more particular about it than others, as we found out on The Big Bang Theory. FYI, the hot water is inadequate on machine two, so colors only, and four is still releasing the fabric softener too early in the cycle, so I'd avoid using that for your delicates. Thanks. Good Lord. Why don't you just take your clothes down to the river and beat them with a rock? (laughs) Big bag theory. Uh, Patrick Richardson is known as the laundry evangelist. He's host of The Laundry Guy. He's author of a book called Laundry Love, and he joins me now from Minnesota. Patrick, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you so much for having me. It's super fun. This is, I mean, it's such, I was thinking about this over the weekend, watching some of the interviews you've done in the past, and it feels like one of those things that absolutely everybody has an opinion on, they have experience with it, and yet we don't actually talk about it that much. I mean, we not in the way that you do. Well, it's, I mean, it's one of the great equalizers, like everyone has to do laundry. You know, I mean, no matter who you are, you have to do laundry, and it's funny because we talk about, you know, the only other thing that we have that experience with is like cooking yeah. and, you know, but we talk about cooking because it's become very, you know, social to like, you know, go to cooking clubs and have dinner parties where everybody brings something. And, you know, there's magazines about cooking and books and TV shows and networks all about cooking stores, everything devoted to cooking. But, you know, we haven't had that same affection to laundry, but, you know, I'm out to change that. Yeah. Tell me, I mean, it's it's a fascinating story because you're, I'll tell you a personal story. When I was young, I was getting ready to go to camp and my, and someone, one of my parents, I won't name them, um, <clears throat> threw something red in with all my whites the day before I was off to summer camp or a few days earlier, dyeing all my stuff a hue of pink that when you're like 12 wasn't fun. And right then I, I said to myself, I need to learn how to do this for myself. And that was it. That was my love of, or at least my experience with laundry. I've been doing it ever since. But you have a really interesting story too about how you kind of got interested in just the whole, how it works. Yeah, well, my earliest experience is I was handing clothespins to my granny to put clothes on the clothesline. And I was about two and a half. And so by that point, I was already obsessed enough with laundry that when I was three, Santa brought me a toy washing machine. So Santa knew you know, 49 years ago, 48 years ago, that, you know, I would, laundry was going to be my thing. So he sort of knew before I did. Uh, it's awesome. Yeah, I read a story about that little washing machine. Um, we start, I started 
contacting you because I'd seen this article about the laundry chair and, and your take mm-hmm. on it was interesting. I think everyone has one. And it's interesting because the laundry chair is one of those things I think a lot of people identify with. Uh, your take was, was interesting, though, that it's not a bad thing to have a place where you sort of decide about what you, where you put off washing things that you're not quite sure about yet. Sure, because you don't just because you wore something doesn't mean you have to wash it. You know, I mean, I have this shirt on now and I've already had lunch and I didn't spill anything on it. So I'm probably good the rest of the day. And, you know, really, I mean, I'm in my store in Mall of America. So, you know, I, there's not really anything I'm doing that's particularly dirty. And I'm not particularly sweaty because it's winter in Minnesota. You can relate. Indeed. And so, you know, there's no reason that I can't wear this again. So I think the laundry chair, you know, it's kind of okay because otherwise your other option would be throw it in the hamper and rewash it. And it's not good for the environment. It's not good for the shirt. You know, there's just really no winner there. Yeah. Do we do we overwash stuff? Is is that an issue? Oh my gosh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, people I know people who wash their jeans every time they wear them. <laughs> And that absolutely drives me crazy. <laughs> that might shock some uh, some gold miner back from uh, you know the late the eighteen fifties in in, uh, in California if they were washing their sheets every once a week. Yeah, exactly. They never washed them because it made them waterproof. Right. They got so dirty they became waterproof. And you know, there's there's probably a, a middle ground in there that I can live with. You know, I don't want my jeans to the point that they're waterproof because they're so dirty. But I also think washing them every time is just absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, we've we've become a bit obsessed with it, too. I wonder if that got even worse during the pandemic, oddly enough. We were just sort of so busy trying to clean everything that we got kind of uh, obsessed with washing stuff all the time, just in case. Where, in fact, you're right, it does a lot of damage to your clothes. It does a lot of damage to your clothes. I mean, when you wash, you know, like activewear, sometimes it releases microplastics. I mean, there's just really no advantage to washing your clothes every time you wear them. I mean, some things you have to, like things that go right next to your skin, like underwear or socks, you really should wash every single time because like it's going to be right next to your skin. But, you know, our jeans, shirts, sweatshirts, that sort of thing, it's just really not necessary and it's really not desirable. You know, it's um, it's hard on the clothes it's extra resources and it's extra time. You know, who has that kind of time? I uh, love to do laundry, but still, come on. Yeah, within reason, right? Only only, only if needed. There's enough out there to do without adding more to it. I mean, I know you get this question all the time. People must stop you all the time and ask you these questions. But what are the questions that people – what are the great laundry mysteries out there? I'll give you mine in a minute. You probably can guess it, but yeah. Well, the biggest one is how much detergent should you use? And right. I can already tell you you're using too much detergent. I don't know how much you use, but I already know you're using too much. In modern washing machines, you only need about two tablespoons if you're using commercial detergent. If you're using laundry soap, you need about one tablespoon. And that's for a full load. So when the load starts getting smaller, you need to start cutting it back. You know, excess detergent does not lead to cleaner clothes. Your clothes are actually dirtier because it doesn't rinse out. And the detergent settles back in your clothes with all the dirt from the washing machine. So your clothes are actually dirtier than when they went in. Yikes. I suppose those caps they give you, they're 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 marketing tools, not laundry tools, right? Yeah. I mean, they're excellent for them. And people say that, well, why do they make it so big? And I'm like, because (laughs) they want you to use it. Yeah. You know, if they could figure out how that you had to use a jug per load, they would do it. It's just we can't make that work. You just only need two tablespoons. I mean, that's that's probably the biggest one. The other one is 
the idea of Washington cold versus Washington warm. You know, cold, our cold and your cold would be the same because you're, you know, also in a more northern area. Our cold is too cold. Ah. So the detergent doesn't activate. So you really need warm water, which warm isn't as warm as you think. It's not nearly as warm as a bath. It actually, if you put your hands in what would be warm in the washing machine, it's going to feel cool. It's just going to be kind of what I would, I, what we would call tepid. Right. And that's actually the correct temperature to wash your clothes. Oh, that's good to know because you're right. The cold here, it's cold. It's awfully cold. It's like freezing water. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So tepid is better. Yeah. Those those sound like I mean, just that that's just sort of the initial stuff, right? On 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 what you should and shouldn't be doing. What about separating? What about the whole? I mean, I grew up sort of saving my whites to wash them separately, and then you doing doing your darks, doing your blacks separately from your darks, and so on. I mean, I don't. Who you basically learn this on on the lap of your parents, right? You don't really have a lot of people, or maybe a significant other, over the course of your lifetime. If you that's how you learn to do laundry. You're never really, I mean, some people are more diligent about this, but most people just learn it kind of by osmosis over time. Right. And that's, you know, sort of one of the biggest disservices we do <laughs> because the idea of whites, lights, darks, which is kind of what you're doing, was what was great for the ringer washing machine. Uh-huh. No one has used a ringer washing machine for 40 years. Uh, no. You know, so there's a better way. And, you really sort whites, blacks, sort of blue colors, like cool colors and warm colors. And then if you have a big household, you also do a load of like active wear, which that fabric is always polyester. It always contains lycra. And the reason you do it is because you need to add an enzyme. I like oxygen bleach mm-hmm. because otherwise it has odor. But oxygen bleach isn't safe for like your smart wool socks, you know, and your wool sweaters and those sorts of things. So you do it like that. But if you have a smaller household, you know, you can combine those together or you just don't have to do every load every week. You know, people tell me, well, I only have three red things. I'm like, then just throw them back in the hamper, you know, do them next week. So you still think that keeping those things together, like active wear, you can do separately, keeping certain colors together is probably a a good idea if you can. I think it's better. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know people don't do it. It's not as bad. Like your pink, your red to white to create pink thing wouldn't happen now. No. Because the technology has gotten so much better. Yeah. Um, so that wouldn't actually happen now. Interesting. But it's still, if you can, it actually is the weight of dye. Um, it actually changes the abrasion. So if you can separate like that, your clothes last longer because they abrade less. Patrick Richardson is with us this half hour, the Laundry Evangelist, host of The Laundry Guy, author of Laundry Love. We're talking laundry. Patrick, I know you've answered this question a thousand times, but you have a toolkit of things that you should have available to you when you're doing laundry. Uh, and some of them are, look like miracle stain removers for just about anything you, you could imagine. And uh, there's some interesting ones in it, too. One in particular that I know is always mentioned that you might not you mightn't think of. Your toolkit starts with your detergent or your soap. And I prefer soap to detergent. But both are okay. And then you need a bar of laundry soap and a horsehair brush. So those things probably everybody, you know, can agree on. Then there's a spray bottle of vinegar and water, which is my stain remover of choice. (laughs) Just cheap white vinegar and water. And then there's the ball of aluminum foil, which that one kind of gets everybody because it's a little weird. But it will remove static. But the one I'm assuming that you're talking about is vodka. Absolutely. Yes. Vodka is the 
ultimate stain remover or the ultimate odor remover. So you can spray vodka in sneakers. If you go to a bonfire and you come home and your shirt is clean, but it smells like the bonfire, you can spray it with vodka. If you smell like someone's fragrance or you stand next to a smoker or you go to a restaurant and you leave and you smell like the restaurant, you can spray it with vodka. And the unique characteristic of vodka is that when it dries, it's odorless and colorless. So it's the only alcohol that does that. Nothing else, you can't substitute anything else, but you spray it on, let it dry and it's done. Then you can, you know, like right now, our winter coats are starting to get a little stale. You can give them a little spritz of vodka and then they're good to go till the end of the season. And you you want to be relatively uh, delicate with this, like you don't want to be be sort of spraying it like you're spraying some huge plant at home. Right? You want to be you want to be fairly judicious about how much you're using. Yeah, just a mist. I mean, you could use more; it's fine, but why waste it? I was uh, I was shocked to see how easily stuff like I, I think a lot of us, especially if you're cooking, you splash yourself. Tomato sauce is a nightmare, right? Um, but vinegar I, vinegar was was. Uh, was was one of the things that you I think this was more for pizza and oil and so on, but vinegar and water is an amazing, an amazing and inexpensive stain remover. Yeah, it's very inexpensive, but it's wildly effective. If you just mix it up and keep it in a spray bottle, I mean probably 90% of the stains in your laundry will come out with just vinegar and water. It's the easiest thing in the world. And it, you know, it's so economical. It makes up for the fact that I'm asking you to spray some things with vodka. Rubbing alcohol, too, is another one that people might be a little surprised by, but it worked. Rubbing alcohol is yeah. great for ink. Right. Um, it's actually not a bad stain remover for anything, but it's really great for ink. And chocolate. And chocolate. It's great for chocolate. You um, so is lemon juice. Lemon right. juice is the other one. You can slice, like if you're cooking, you can like squeeze a little lemon on things and, you know, it just comes right out. Really? And it's just sort of, well, I've watched you do this. It's just sort of water and dabbing and water and da- like it just the, the product and then a bit of dabbing. You're not sort of, you're not going too hardcore on it, right? No, you don't need to. Just let the product do what it's supposed to do. You know, there's no reason to just attack it like, you know, that you're going to war. I mean, if you can just put it on and then let it do what it's supposed to do. And then, you know, you can go on with the rest of your day because I love laundry, but even loving laundry still, you know, there's just no reason to overdo it. What are some of the things that people do that absolutely make you want to pull your hair out? I'm curious. <laughs> um, use too much detergent. Get too aggressive. I had a woman today. She got a white spot on a sweatshirt, and she emailed me. She had used a stain remover. That didn't work. She used denture tablets. <laughs> I have no idea. That didn't work. She used automatic dishwasher detergent. That didn't work. She used chlorine bleach. That didn't work. And then she contacted me. <laughs> And I'm like, I'm surprised you haven't literally put a hole in it because you've just burnt through it. That is a list of things you have done to a piece of fabric. <laughs> Poor sweatshirt. Wow. I know. And I thought, and you tell me that your granddaughter loves this sweatshirt. That's why you're trying to save it. And yet the only thing you haven't used is a blowtorch. It's just it it blows my mind. I mean, people just, they think they just have to get so aggressive. And then, you know, the final thing is just put it in the washer for two hours and then put it in the dryer until you come back to it. So then it tumbles in the dryer for two hours. You know, it's just so hard on your clothes and you end up with so much lint. And you need to remember that lint is just your clothes dying. 
it's a good you know, point. so yeah. it's just being so aggressive. I think, I guess just overall, it's just being too aggressive, you know, too much detergent, too many stain removers and too long in the dryer. Yeah. And, and, and for your, for your washer settings, do you tend to go with, with sort of a quicker wash or a longer wash or a gentle? I live or... and die by the express cycle. Yeah, me too. You know, the 30 minute cycle is long enough. It's long enough to clean your clothes, but it's short enough not to damage them. Yeah. I, I don't think you ever need anything else. The one thing I really struggle with is deodorant stains, especially on whites, obviously, because they kind of yellowish and get, get yellowish, but also on other stuff too. And I'm just, that, that was, that was the one I was going to point to earlier. That's always the one that I've struggled with for years. I've never been able to figure it out. All right. So here's how you do it. You take an oily soap, like liquid hand soap is excellent for this. Put it on the stain, sprinkle oxygen bleach on it, which is a powder, rub it in, let it sit like a couple hours later, turn the faucet all the way to hot and run the hottest possible water straight through it. And that'll take it out. That's it. And but there's a to... better trick. Uh -huh. Once you get it out or you start with a new shirt, if every time you spray the underarms with vinegar and water, right before it goes in the washer, the vinegar has to be wet when the washer starts, you'll never have the stain again. So, so yeah, now it's a prevention. There you go. That's perfect. Yeah. Patrick, uh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Yeah, it was super fun. Thank you. The Grammy Awards, of course, can be a bit of a hit or miss affair. But last night was a real chart topper, at least by recent metrics. Ratings in the U.S. were up 34% from last year, averaging about 17 million viewers, biggest since 2020. And it was ladies' night in L.A. for sure. The women reigned supreme, taking all the major awards, including Record of the Year for uh, Pop Performance of the Year for Miley Cyrus's Flowers, which you just heard. Song of the Year went to Billie Eilish and her team for the Barbie track, What Was I Made For? Victoria Monet was the best new artist. And Taylor Swift continued her remarkable remarkable run with two Grammys, including a record-setting fourth for Best Album. She broke that tie with three others, Paul Simon, Stevie Wonder, and Frank Sinatra, who all had won three Best Album awards. She won her fourth. The award was given to her, though, and this was a surprise by none other than Celine Dion. When I say that um, I'm happy to be here, I really mean it from my heart. Yeah, it was a surprise return for the icon who's been living with stiff person syndrome. We did this story when it happened, a rare and incurable neurological disorder that causes intense muscle stiffness. Uh, she announced the diagnosis a little more than a year ago now, so it was great to see her out there. She got a huge standing ovation, but not she didn't get much of a warm welcome from Taylor Swift, which we'll also talk about because it was another one of those things that happened last night. It was one of the few, uh, it was one of quite a few major highlights uh, of the night to feature Canadian women, perhaps none so moving as the first ever Grammy performance by Joni Mitchell, a rare appearance since her recovery from a brain aneurysm back in 2015. Have a listen to her singing her 1969 classic, Both Sides Now, alongside Brandy Carlyle. That was uh, just a snippet of it. We can't play too much for you. There's a limit on how much we can play, but that was Joni Mitchell singing both sides now last night. Earlier, the 80-year-old won her 10th career Grammy for Best Folk Album for Live at Newport. The album captured her return to performing two years ago. Mitchell said during the Grammy premiere ceremony that the album was a pleasure to make. We had so much fun at that concert, and, and I, I think that you can feel it on the record. You know, it, it's a very joyous record because of the people that I played with and the spirit of of the 
occasion was very high, and and it went on to the record. Even the audience it sounds like music. Yeah, there you have it. Uh, Eric Alper, publicist and music commentator, who's a regular here, joins me now. Eric, thanks so much for your time tonight. Oh, no problem. It's just a coincidence that the Grammys ended about six minutes ago. So, um, <laughs> a long, uh, long night. Um, no, no, I'm only kidding. But yeah, it's a what a what a fun, thrilling, um, astonishing night that was. And it was. Uh, I think that you know people are still kind of feeling the effects of all the feels that they felt seeing people like Joni Mitchell and Celine Dion and Tracy Chapman, among others. Yeah, I mean, because oftentimes, you know, we try to plan Monday's show in advance, and I, I saw the earlier in the week, I'm like, oh, the Grammys are on. Well, you know, I don't, we don't normally, unless people don't say much about the Grammys the next day, but this was, this was different. I was really uh, impressed, I have to be honest, with Joni Mitchell and her performance and the reception that she got. You know, it was, it was, it was heartwarming, and she, uh, and you know, Brandy Carlisle had some incredible words to say about her off the top as she introduced her. Um, and, and just it sort of talked about how Joni Mitchell was for all singer songwriters, uh, women that it was like Joni yeah, Mitchell had you, skinny dip first and skinny dip first, and I thought that was a great <laughs> analogy. Yeah, yeah, you know this this award show seems very very different than the ones in the past. Um, even though that the, uh, the Grammys still don't have it right when it comes to hip hop, it still completely ignores anything global music except for Burna Boy um, last night, um, completely eradicates any memory of K-pop, um, even though that those three are the biggest kind of, you know, selling and listening genres. But this one felt different because it really truly was a mixture of the old and the new. The ratings are up, so the older generations are still watching it on cable, but the streams and the views on YouTube and the social media mentions are still going on. So you've got a whole generation of music lovers that are between the ages of, say, 8 and 15 who would never sit down and watch anything um, on regular cable are suddenly getting involved for the first time on TikTok and Twitter and Instagram and Twitch and the other social media sites talking about the excitement that they're feeling over Taylor Swift, the the first time that they got to hear somebody like Tracy Chapman or wondering who this Joni Mitchell woman is and how come her parents have all their albums. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yes, indeed. I, I was actually trying to explain last night that as a kid, my mom would put on Joni Mitchell. I'd be like, oh, you know, <laughs> not that stuff. And of course, know, as you, you get older, to get older to understand it. I know. Yeah, to get older to understand it. Absolutely. It was interesting, um, but to see Celine Dion as well, because they'd sort of, uh, they they kind of teased some famous singer that was going to come out and and, and introduce uh, the album of the year, and sure enough, uh, there she was, and it was nice to see her. I mean, you know, she you forget first of all that she's been part of Canadian the Canadian music uh, music quilt for such a long time now, but she seemed genuinely happy about the reception that she got and being back in public as well. You know, being Canadians. Sometimes it, it, it's a little bit weird when we hear about the success of somebody that's one of our own, um, when we hear about the sales figures of a Shania Twain or The Weeknd or Drake. It, it's their numbers are so big you really can't wrap your head around it Celine Dion is at the top of all of that I mean she was selling albums when people were selling albums she's sold well over 150 million albums she sold out Las Vegas for years but when you get to see her and we haven't seen her in a very long time um being up there, I think one of the big reasons why they kept it a secret wasn't so that we were all kind of yay at the moment. I think it was because her her 
what she's going through is such an hour by hour and day by day syndrome that anything could have happened. So I think that they just wanted to kind of play it safe, not mention her, not build it up, not put any undue pressure on her. Um, because if anything happened, it not only stops her from talking and walking, but if she fell, it could be disastrous for her um, and giving her a lot of setbacks. So it was wonderful to see her, even though that it looked like that Taylor Swift got so excited um, winning her Album of the Year award trophy that she hugged and kissed everybody on stage except for Celine Dion. Yeah, I was going to talk about I didn't want to make too much hay of that. But of course, Celine came out and she thanked those who presented her with that very same award uh, quite a while earlier. So to sort of acknowledge, I think it was Sting, and I can't remember who the other person was, uh, maybe Whitney Houston, who, who gave her her first Album of the Year award, sort of acknowledging how this is kind of a, you know, a, a torch that's passed from generation to generation. Yeah. And it was quite touching. And then, of course, Swift breaks the record for most best album Grammys and then comes up and sort of just completely ignores her. Now they, there was a very nice photo of the two of them yes, behind absolutely. backstage afterwards. Yeah. But but yeah that was an odd that was an odd moment. Well, it was because, and, and, and it kind of made it so glaring. And look, I, I'm a Taylor Swift fan, so I'm going to cut her a lot of slack for saving this industry many, many times over, and the NFL um, to begin with. But, you know, the whole evening, all nine categories were won by songs that were sung by women. There's only one category, really, that goes to the producers that was male-dominated. But, you know, when you have SZA winning the Best Progressive R&B album, and it's handed to her by Lizzo, you could see the love and the, and the admiration that they have for one another. When Miley Cyrus got her award for flowers, um, she got it from Mariah Carey and Miley Cyrus was like, I didn't even know if I was going to get here due to the traffic and the rain. I could miss the awards, but I'm not going to miss Mariah Carey. And you right. can tell that whoever they were getting the award from, they truly were honored and happy. That's why it was so glaring when Taylor Swift didn't mention Selene, was that she kind of broke the, 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 the whole we're all in this together mold. But that's okay. I'll let that one pass. Yeah. And I mean, and honestly, I, I couldn't tell whether someone in, in the vast PR teams that surround many of these people simply went, oh, my God, you need to take a picture together now before people yeah. start talking. But it was interesting. Again, one of the things about I mean, I have I, I have no I've all kinds of time for Taylor Swift. I'm not a huge fan of her music, but I've you know, I've got time for Taylor Swift. Um, it was interesting, though, that even there, how often they panned to her. So you get this. Uh, we'll talk about Tracy Chapman in the, in the next little bit. But you get this incredible moment with Tracy Chapman and Luke Combs up on stage singing together. And all of a sudden they they cut away to, to, to Taylor Swift singing Fast Car. They did that again, I think, uh, when Celine Dion walked out even. And I thought, why do they keep cutting away to Taylor because Swift? She, it, because she is the, the official cheerleader for everyone. And that right. you know that if, she, if that artist passes the, is Taylor happy? Is she singing along with it? Then it's okay for everybody to do it. Um, look, look she's, she is the most important person in the music industry. Billboard came out with their most powerful list of the top 100 people in music and she's number one i mean she's time yeah. magazine's person of the year so i i think you know when when you're kind of in that stratosphere you're always going to be looking for taylor swift and her reaction for it because she's she's re she really is truly fun you know when she hangs out with olivia rodrigo and they sing together or when she spots lana del rey who is also on her midnight's album and they're singing together it's a real 
you know, gorgeous moment when you can watch two people or three people who normally don't get to see one another for very long. And you realize that they're just human too. They just no curveball. They just like to kind of hang out and have fun as well. Yeah. I mean, that, I think that's what made the show fun last night is that for most of it, not all of it, but for most of it, Meryl Streep there with Mark Ronson, who's a famous producer, of course, who worked early on with Amy Winehouse and so on. And she's, he's now, she's Meryl Streep's mother-in-law. <laughs> it, it just, there was just a lot of fun in it. And oftentimes at award shows, the problem is there isn't enough fun. And there was a lot of fun in this one last night. Yeah, and definitely. And that tone was set by, by the host, Trevor Noah, who mm-hmm. has no interest whatsoever in slagging or roasting any of the musicians that's really a not what he is about and b um you know if you want to ever talk about you know fragile sensitive egos musicians are absolutely right up there on the top of the list they already think that the entire world doesn't like their songs no matter how many sold out shows that they do um but you know when he is so warm and um, and so optimistic about everybody's chances and how much, you know, they are loved. Th- that kind of really sets the tone rather than, um, uh, you know, sometimes in a category where there's eight people and one of them's going to win. He kind of made everybody feel like they were all winners. And I know it sounds like a cliche, but he really did, as opposed to one person is going to win the Oscar and the other seven are really mad. It was a big night for women at the Grammy Awards last night, including Montreal's Alison Russell, who you're hearing there. She won uh, her first Grammy for American Roots performance for her song, Eve Was Black. Uh, Eric Alper is with us, music commentator and publicist. He often joins us for these sorts of things. Eric, I didn't know a lot. I mean, I'd heard the name, but I didn't know a ton about Alison Russell. I kind of spent the day listening to her stuff. Uh, that's impressive. That's uh, she's She's got some great stuff out there. Yeah, you know, one thing that the Grammys still doesn't really do very well is kind of put folk music and roots music in the spotlight, even though that it's certainly one of the most popular styles in America. I mean, you know, folk music and and the term America kind of, you know, neatly fits hand in hand with one another. And Alison Russell, who is from Montreal, um, won the Best American Roots performance um, at the uh, the Grammys for her song, Eve Was Black. And she actually accepted the award last night in the ceremony ahead of the gala. And, you know, when we were talking in the last segment about, um, you know, what a love fest it was for all of these women who won awards, she shouted out Brandy Carlisle, who was a, a big reason why Joni Mitchell um, ended up on stage, um, not even last night, but, you know, just appearing at the Newport Folk Festival and getting her revved up for another show in Los Angeles coming this at the end of this year. Um, but Brandy Carlisle was she kind of showed her out saying that she was the one that actually kicked the doors of the industry for artists like her. Um, and, you know, so it, it was very, very cool. It's a phenomenal record that Alison Russell has put together and uh, uh, definitely well worth your time. Yeah, we had the Brothers Osborne on, uh, I think, last year. They're, they're, they were nominated for Best Country Album, didn't win Lainey Wilson, who we've also had on the show, ended up winning for that one. She's on a real streak. But it's amazing how much Canadians are sort of integrating into that Americana scene in Nashville now and how, many, how much Canadian influence there is right now there. <laughs> 
Yeah, and it's not just the sun, although that's a pretty good idea of it. But, you know, when you're in Nashville, um, you can't really not run into uh, country or roots or folk singer-songwriter. And it's always been like that. But in the last couple of years, though, thanks to the way that music is being consumed and being promoted, you're actually not really going after the local community and the local media if you're from, say, Calgary or Edmonton, and no slight to them. But the minute that you start to release your record on Spotify or YouTube, you need to go after the world at the same time. And with that, you might as well start to work with the very best people to compete with every other song that's out there. And that's why I think a lot of these Canadians are going to um, Nashville along with L.A. and New York, same as it was back in the 1960s when we didn't even have a, a music industry to speak of in this country. And people like Randy Bachman and Joni Mitchell and Neil Young and, and David Clayton Thomas and Andy Kim all had to leave Canada in order to break a big in the U.S. Now we've got a strong industry um, for such a small country that we are, but Nashville is still the place to be if you want to break it in, in, in those styles of music. Speaking of country music, let's play a quick little clip here of, uh, of, uh, of Fast Car, because this was one of the great moments last night. You got a fast car. It's fast enough so you can fly away. We gotta make the decision. Keep tonight or live and die this way. Yeah, that was just a quick one. We can't play too much of them because there are limits. But Tracy Chapman joined Luke Combs to sing Fast Car. Now, this was a number one country hit for Luke Combs uh, last year. And there was a bit of controversy around I mean, Tracy Chapman became the first black woman to have a number one, to write a number one song on the country charts in America. And there were some sort of words out there about whether or not he needed to ask her about covering the song. But they got up there on stage last night. First of all, Tracy Chapman, as always, knocked it out of the park as she did. But it was a really nice moment, too, to sing that song together. Yeah, it's probably one of my favorite moments I've ever watched on the Grammys. And you're right, you know, Luke, you know, and maybe you know this, um, there might be some people in the audience that, that don't. Um, you can go and cover any song you want. You don't need permission from the original artist. As long as you pay the royalties, you're good to go. So, you know, watch for Ben and my own duet that we're going to do at midnight that we're going to launch. No, um, but Luke actually asked Tracy Chapman if it was okay to cover that song. Um, and, and that just shows the amount of respect that he had. He didn't change any of the lyrics, too. He didn't make it gender-specific. So he was still singing, you know, that he was a grocery checkout girl, um, right. which, which I thought was interesting, though, because he didn't update anything, which shows you that these lyrics were so powerful back in 1998, in 1988, when the song first came out, and they're still relevant in 2024. The car still means as much as it does when it, you know, arrived in the 50s and 60s for a lot of these singer-songwriters. So the idea of escaping those bad times, just going and traveling with somebody that you love or by yourself and leaving all your troubles behind, is something that still resonates. And the way that Tracy Chapman felt that love of being on stage from that audience, this is only the third time that she's been performing in over 15 years. And I think... You know, it would be so good to see her more and with more music, but I don't think so. I think that her self-imposed exile is still making her quite content and quite happy. Yeah, she looked very content, though. Just I mean, there was, she, there was a smile on her face at one point last night um, during when she was first sort of applauded on, and it was it was yeah. kind of a magical moment. Uh, Eric, as always, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me, Ben. We'll talk soon. 
Alberta Premier Danielle Smith was in Ottawa today. You may have noticed she was opening an Alberta office not far from Parliament Hill and sort of the the nerve center of the federal government. But she faced some questions today about her recent policy announcement on transgender youth. Um, And of course, that was one of the things she probably didn't want to talk about today. Uh, But the UCP plans to or at least UP government in Alberta, plans to ban or significantly curtail access to gender-affirming care and support in healthcare and education. So today she was asked about it again. She says it's about protecting young people. Uh, here's Here are her exact words. We just need to take a considered approach on this and make sure that uh, young people are being fully informed, they're not being rushed, and that they're able to make decisions at an age where they can deal with the consequences of those decisions. These are sometimes lifelong decisions that they're going to be making. And so that's why we needed to put some guidelines around us. Yeah, I mean, that kind of presumes that they're being rushed and there were no guidelines, both of which I don't think are necessarily the case. Smith says the changes will be rolled out in the fall legislature and said last week that she isn't ruling out invoking the Charter's Notwithstanding Clause to pass the legislation. You'll remember perhaps that uh, Saskatchewan did exactly the same thing with slightly different legislation, mind you. Uh, Liberal Employment Minister and Alberta MP Randy Bosino says the planned policies for trans youth are draconian and harmful. What she has proposed to ban young LGBTQ2 kids from being who they are puts lives at risk. And the decision to come out to one's family does not belong to a teacher, a school. It definitely does not belong to a premier. That is a person's decision alone. Uh, there you go, Randy Bossano. The province's proposed policies spurred protests that you may have seen in Calgary and in Edmonton this weekend. Uh, the federal Conservatives, meantime, have been noticeably silent on Premier Smith's plan, but opposition leader Pierre Polyev was asked about them today. Let parents raise kids and provinces run schools and hospitals. Interesting. I mean, not much of a, not sort of avoiding the topic there, which I, I imagine politically for the for the Conservatives is probably exactly what they want to be doing. Interesting, though, for a leader who likes to tell the provinces and municipalities how to run housing, drug policy, crime fighting, and so on and so on. Um, interestingly enough, there have been people coming out with different forms of concerns about these Alberta policies. One of them is the Alberta, Alberta Medical Association. Dr. Sam Wong is president of the pediatrics section of the AMA and medical affairs director of the Canadian Pediatric Society. Uh, Dr. Wong, thank you. Hello, how are you? I'm well. I, I, perhaps just, I mean, I've been reading your comments uh, on this. Perhaps just a reminder uh, of the AMA's initial position on these new policies in, in, in a nutshell. Basically, we're saying that the government shouldn't be interfering in a therapeutic relationship between the patient, the parents, and the medical team that is taking care of that patient. Right. I mean, because I think in listening to Premier Smith, even though she says it in very calm and measured tones, she's essentially suggesting a couple of things. A, that kids are rushing into this, and B, that there isn't a measured approach. And I'm wondering if either of those uh, jive with what you see. It does not jive with what I see. I um, have had a few patients that I've referred to the transgender clinic. It's a very slow process. Um, the patients that I have referred have been transgender for years, so six or seven years. Um, they don't get referred to the transgender clinic until they're much older. So they've been living as the opposite sex for uh, several years, the ones I've seen anyways. And then when they do go to the transgender clinic, they get assessed by the physicians, the psychologists, the endocrinologists, the adolescent uh, pediatrician, the counselors, um, and it's a slow process. And then after much deliberation, um, if once they turn, um, when they hit puberty, then they're allowed access 
to um, puberty blockers, which just gives them, you know, basically stops puberty and gives them more time to think about their decision. And that is what they're denying care to or denying access to. So I think that uh, what they're doing is actually making it more irreversible and more problematic because if you actually allow people to stop puberty just after they start it, then you may not need the invasive surgeries that they're talking about um, preventing in, in pediatric patients. Um, it becomes much easier. It gives them time to actually think about their decision and allows them um, the time to really mature a little bit psychologically, uh, emotionally, uh, as well as intellectually about this decision. And then when they do make the decision, they may decide, like my colleague's son, transgender son, um, to stop the uh, puberty blockers after several years and go through biological puberty uh, as a female um, because they were ready and mature emotionally, psychologically, and, and uh, intellectually. Right. I was looking at some numbers trying to figure out just how how, how you know how common this is, and I saw that there are about you know there are roughly five hundred eighty thousand teens in Alberta. Um, I think as far as as claims for 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 treatment for for gender dysphoria dysphoria and so on. In fact, we don't even know there were about twenty maybe twenty five hundred. It seems like a very it's not that it's not something that we should discuss, but it seems like a very small part of what the medical community and, and even what adolescents. Uh, are, are are going through these days this whole idea of that somehow this is the kind of problem that the government government needs to tackle you know urgently yeah and that's something that we as physicians see we don't see a large number of these patients um, and it seems heavy-handed to actually introduce legislation directed at this um, minority population that is already harassed and ostracized and stigmatized already to the point where they have increased mental health issues uh, more so than the average teen. It's hard enough to go through adolescence, as you and I remember, um, but to go through there trying to determine whether you're of the right sex and, and the right gender, um, it, I mean, that adds a whole another dimension to, uh, to adolescence. And it's no wonder, having seen some of the comments that I've seen on social media directed at transgender populations, I mean, I was getting anxious reading some of the comments. Um, and that's for half an hour. That's the the day-to-day -day life of a transgender patient, patient or person, um, they may not even be a patient. They just may be a transgender person living in society today to be directed all this abuse at you just because you made a decision about your gender that has no bearing on anybody else's life? Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously, I, I'm sure you're keenly aware of the politics around around this, specifically the politics coming out of the United States. But we could talk about this uh, as well. I mean, there's been some reconsideration in Europe as well. Tell me a bit about the consultation process, because that's been one of those issues where the premier has been asked repeatedly, who did you talk to, by the way? And I know she didn't talk to teachers. Did she talk to doctors? Not that I'm aware of. She certainly didn't talk to the section of pediatrics. I don't think she talked to the AMA based on my conversations with the president, Paul Parks. Um, I'm not sure which physician she actually consulted with, um, if she did at all. Um, did she talk to the one transgender person who had regrets? Is that the consultation she talked about? I'm not sure because there was not a lot of consultation with medical physicians about this that I am aware of. Some of the things, I mean, there's a lot to this policy, and I guess if you're outside of Alberta, it's hard to keep to keep track. And a lot, of course, a lot of our listeners aren't in Alberta tonight. Uh, but what are the, some of the other things that you've seen in this policy that give you, on the medical side, obviously, that give you, uh, pa, you know, cause for pause because you don't think they're necessarily 
I, I basically, could you fact check some of it? Because there's been things said uh, in this conversation uh, with Danielle Smith. She's been asked nor- numerous times about this, about sort of things happening very, very quickly, about certain things being irreversible, about kids sort of going into, into puberty and making bad decisions and, they, and that they'll never get back. And and all of it seems like it's painting a picture of something that that I don't think exists. It doesn't exist. First of all, what she's talking about is uh, the irreversibility. Uh, first of all, puberty blockers are not irre- irreversible. So you give the puberty blockers, they work, they stop puberty at the the time you start taking them, and then when you stop it, they can go forward with the uh, puberty. So their natural sex hormones kick in, and they, they go through uh, the secondary sex characteristics that you would expect with puberty. Then there's hormone, uh, the, the actual hormone therapy, which is testosterone and estrogen, that has some irreversible effects, but usually by that point in time, they're 16, 17, or even 18 before they make that decision. Um, so really, the, the puberty blockers are for younger kids. When you get rid of puberty blockers, then they go through puberty. And then that means if they decide they want to do gender affirming care, if they want to do surgery, it's going to be much more invasive. They may need surgery, whereas if they may not have necessarily needed surgery beforehand. And then this idea that you need to have um, legislation banning uh, bottom surgery, which doesn't happen in Canada under the age of 18. Why is that necessary? And, and finally, this idea of needing a registry for, for physicians that practice gender-affirming care, we actually should be all on that registry because we should be pro- providing some degree of gender-affirming care when they, these patients come into our office. But it's snacks of surveillance. And, and for what reason do we need a registry of physicians who provide gender-affirming care? If I'm a physician and I have a patient who needs referral to an adolescent pediatrician for gender-affirming care, like, you know, the next stage, I know how to get a hold of them. I don't need the registry. So what purpose is that registry for? Dr. Sam Wong is with us this half hour. He's president of the Pediatrics Section of the Alberta Medical Association and Medical Affairs Director of the Canadian Pediatrics Association. We're talking about the AMA's reaction to these proposed uh, policy changes that would significantly curtail access to gender-affirming care and support in healthcare in Alberta. These are meant to uh, come into play in the fall, according to the Premier. There's going to be some consultations. Um, Dr. Wong, I know you're aware, I mean, this has been a debate that's been going on for quite some time in Europe, but I've noticed there's been a bit of a shift in some of the thinking in the Netherlands and, and in Sweden and Denmark uh, and in the UK. Uh, importantly, though, the decision, the final decisions are always left in the hands of medical professionals. These are not being legislated. Uh, but certainly we're seeing some, I mean, this is a conversation that continues to evolve around what is best care in these, in these domains. Yeah, I think that's something that's still something we're working on. Um, It's something that we, uh, you know, I'm not saying that what we're doing is perfect, um, but it's an evolution. And what we know is that what we're doing right now seems to be working for the majority of our patients. Right. And when you look at these at these proposed changes, I mean, I gather there's going to be a consultation period as well. Um, but I, I suppose one of the things that as an outsider that, that strikes me about them is that while this debate has on, been ongoing in, in, in Europe, for instance, versus what we're seeing in the U.S. where it's literally been legislated, uh, you know, where they're banned, essentially, the idea that you take it out of the hands of that, as you pointed out off the top, that relationship between patient and the medical community seems to me like a big problem when the province starts to insert itself, when politics starts to insert itself in this very sacred relationship. Yeah, it's interesting because the rest of the policy, when it comes to the education, you know, you need to have parents' permission 
to talk about sex. You need to have parents' permission to talk to use a different name or for their pronouns to be changed. But when it comes to medical therapy, all of a sudden the the parents' decision is not adequate. Like, how does that jibe with the rest of their policy when it comes to school? You know, this is even more important, I, I think, when it talks about, you're talking about medical care of the patient, and you're taking it out of the hands of the parents and the patients, and it, you're putting it in the government's hands? How does that work? Especially for a what is considered right-of-center government, talking about parental rights and individual rights. This is just trampling on the rights of children and, and trampling on the rights of parents, if anything, yeah. I, I mean, what's interesting, too, here is how it's been framed, of course, is this idea of protecting children from themselves, essentially. And I think a lot of it's based on this idea that, and for, for whatever reason, this idea that somehow this is being hurried through the medical system. And I, I don't think, of, I couldn't think of anything like this that would be hurried through the medical system, as if they're being encouraged to go down this route or need time to reflect on it. Uh, what do you tell the people out there who may be unconvinced by all this, who may be suspicious of this, maybe fearful of, of, of what we've seen out there in terms of, you know, uh, certainly younger people being more assertive and more, perhaps hopefully more confident about their gender choices, um, that, that maybe, according to the MA at least, that this isn't the way to tackle what can be, uh, you know, a delicate, a delicate conversation that we should be having. Yeah, I, I think it is a delicate conversation. And this is a conversation that takes time. It's not somebody that, you know, we if somebody came to my office and said, you know, today I want to be the opposite sex, I'm transgender, I'd be like, yeah, okay, come back and talk to me in another month or two months and we'll see what's going on and let's see how things are going. Is there other issues or other mental health issues that we need to address first? Uh, do we need to provide some counseling? Do we, what is the, why is the decision made so rushed, right? If this is not something that we rush. Um, and it, the patients I've referred are the ones who have been transgender for years, and they know it. The parents know it. And, and there's no doubt in my mind that, you know, I refer them and then we give them the options. And they may decide when they're a little bit older, when they hit puberty, that they don't want to do puberty blockers. But they have the option right now. As of whenever they introduce legislation, they will not have that option. And then you're forcing them to go into puberty. And then if they do decide they want to do gender affirming care, then it's much more invasive treatment. So I don't... Yeah. It's hard for me as a, uh, as a physician who takes care of transgender patients, not a large number of them, but who do take care of transgender patients and seeing the mental health issues that they have because they're ostracized, because they're harassed, because of the stigma that is attached to them in society as is. And then you have media and then some media, not all media, most media is quite good, but some media jumping on them as well as the government. Like, how does that make a transgender adolescent feel they're stigmatized already in society and then to have the government jump on the bandwagon to make them even more stigmatized in 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 saying that they're trying to protect them there's better ways of protecting them this is not the way to protect them where to from here then dr wong i know these, these haven't happened yet it's supposed to you know we're probably about 10 months away or nine months away at this point um what will the ma be doing between now and then well, I think we'll continue lobbying. I think we'll continue trying to uh, agitate for changes to the um, to the, the proposals. I, I think they're wrong. I think there's a lot of misconceptions. Um, it's based on misconceptions. The fact that you know puberty blockers are irreversible. Um, they are not. We use them for precocious puberty. We've been using them for years as, for precocious puberty with no side effects. 
And those patients went on to have children. It doesn't affect their fertility. So there's a lot of misconceptions out there. And I think we need to do a better job addressing those misconceptions and educating people about the difference between puberty blockers versus hormone therapy versus the surgery. And that if you don't want people to go for the surgery, then you need to introduce some of the medical therapy earlier so that we don't need to go to that step. Well, Dr. Wong, I appreciate your insight on this tonight. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for your time. I really appreciate you spending some time on this. The federal government you may have seen over the weekend is extending its ban on foreign home purchasing in this country. Finance Minister Christopher Freeland made the announcement in a release on Sunday. The rule, which was first announced in 2022, will now extend, and it took uh, effect on January 1st of last year, 2023. It will now extend until the beginning of 2027. It bans foreign nationals and commercial enterprises from buying residential property in this country, with exceptions for some international students, refugee claimants, and temporary workers. Uh, as Freeland put it on Sunday, by extending the foreign buyer ban, we will ensure houses are used as homes for Canadian families to live in and do not become a speculative financial asset class. Uh, experts have questioned whether the ban is having a significant effect a significant effect on housing affordability in this country, given that there's actually a very small share of the overall housing market that's owned by non-Canadians. I think back in 2020, the market share by non-residents in some provinces was, it's like 2 to 6% total. In BC, it was around 1.1% of home sales included a foreign buyer in 2021. Um, and there are exceptions, right, to this if you that allow for the purchase of buildings with four or more residences and some or in some less populated areas also if you buy a vacation property that's still allowed so there are some exceptions in all this um, what's interesting about this though is that they went ahead with it now and in the last half hour i was criticizing the provincial government of alberta for going ahead with something that has absolutely no scientific basis you could look it up if you doubt um, and by the way just for people who who worry about if you think a pediatrician do you think one of Canada's foremost pediatricians, an expert on the mental and physical health of teenagers, for instance, is a biased opinion, then, then I don't know what to tell you. I really don't know what to tell you. If you think he has an axe to grind, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, these are the smartest people out there on these issues. Why wouldn't you talk to them, right? And, and, and just because you don't like their opinion doesn't mean they're wrong, by the way. So here we are again with this idea versus policy versus politics, because oftentimes what you think is good policy because you like the politics, so they're your home team that have put this through, you think, oh, that's a good idea because I like them. It's actually bad policy. It's just politics, and it's good to recognize the difference. So there are, again, some exceptions here, but is this really making a difference? And if it is, where are the, where's the proof that this is having any impact? Now, I know a lot of people think this is very popular because, of course, you don't want to have this idea that other people are coming in and buying up property here and driving up real estate costs. And in some cases, it could be potentially true, but oftentimes the stats have been inconclusive. So why extend this now unless it's simply a question of politics for the governing liberals who are in a very bad position in the polls and know that the housing file has been a severe Achilles heel for them for a while now. Joining me now is Diana Mock. She's an associate professor at Western University who studies the economics of real estate. Diana, thank you. You're very welcome. I know you've written about this quite extensively in the past, but uh, I suppose just your reaction to it being renewed for another significant period of time, uh, I don't imagine it came as much of a, much of a surprise. Not at all, but I just feel that the extension comes at a rush. And in fact, um, located in Ontario myself and looking at some of the uh, proposed policy from the city, I just have a feeling that the three levels of government are trying to attack um, or at, at least address the housing issues 
from similar angles, but without a consistent voice. Taking you back a bit, because I think a lot of people would have, I'm in BC, of course, so the whole issue about foreign buyers came up here very quickly and, and very loudly. But take me back a bit to the whole rationale behind Canada bringing this ban in and when it took effect. Well, the ban came into effect uh, last year, January the 1st. Uh, it was initially intended to be two years that prohibited non-Canadians to purchase uh, residential homes in urban areas greater than at least 10,000 people. Uh, it excluded uh, recreational uh, properties and then some exclusions for uh, international students and people holding work permits. But in general, the rationale behind it is housing is for Canadian foreign buyers. Sorry, not for you. Right. Unless you want to buy a big cottage in the Muskokas or something, in which case, come on in. Yeah. yeah. Right. Was it, was it, Diana, was it based on, I mean, I remember the debate that happened in BC because it was a long and vigorous debate about just how much impact foreign buyers were actually having on the housing market. From what you looked into, was this, I mean, I know it made sense politically, but but policy-wise, was this, was this a proper response to an actual problem? Uh, in the first place, we have to recognize that data that will clearly show how many foreign buyers in Canada and also what's the impact on the housing market is in it, right now is still very scanty. And it's just insufficient evidence to show clear um, support for the policy direction. And in fact, uh, for based on the limited data that we have, um, we are finding just about 2 to 8% of all the transactions uh, in 2022 were made by foreign buyers. And right. in fact, if I look at the numbers in Ontario um, in the year, it's a little old, but uh, based on the land transfer tax in the year 2020, a little back, uh, and the average house price in Ontario purchased by foreign buyers were not at all much higher than any average Canadians buying and selling in the market. Because I think there was this perception that people were coming in with bags of money, buying up places all over the place, bidding them up, buying them up, uh, then leaving them essentially abandoned, abandoned well, empty. I mean, there was this this preconceived notion about what the foreign buyer was doing. And it feels like anecdotally that may have been true. There may have been examples of it. But that uh, overall, it probably wasn't really happening that way, or at least it wasn't driving up the cost of housing in any significant way. Think about this way, you know, we always like dramas, all those big stories. Oh, wow, someone buying a five million house. Yeah, uh, a, stu a student buying a five million dollar house was the big one, right? Yes. I know, but yeah. then if you think about it, that might be one in, let's say, 10,000 transactions. But imagine the many other transactions that you and I or any property owners want to take a share of the capital gain in a very hot housing market, I think the impact from an average Canadian is much higher than those one or two um, foreign buyers that we can put our fingers on. I suppose the the alternate question then, if it doesn't do a lot of good, uh, perhaps I think politically we know, understand that it does good, but if, if in terms of policy, it doesn't make a whole lot of a difference, does it do any harm? Because if it does no harm, then I suppose it's, a, it's, it's, it's just a, a wash, right? But does it do any harm? I think it's politically signaling that we are moving in a 
direction towards uh, protectionalist, protectionalism in the sense that like these are can, housing is for Canadians only. We want to protect uh, our resources for our people. So it is at least socially um, sending a signal to the market. You, you, we are moving backward in terms of looking at a more open and welcoming society to non-Canadians doing businesses here. Right. Because I, 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 to, to go backward a little bit, I understood, I mean, a lot of the houses that we consider to be purchased by, and this was pointed out in many different places, a, a lot of people who purchase properties here who may not live here full time, oftentimes already have family. I mean, they, oftentimes these are permanent residents or people who have um, the means and the right to own property in this country. There are very few sort of out and out people with foreign passports or no connections to Canada who land here and start buying up property just to sort of just as an investment. Well, if that is the case, the question is about the use of resources, right? Like the right. use of idling houses and not so much about who they are. So I think a policy about vacancy, taxing those, va uh, those vacant units will be much more uh, based on rationale, clear rationale about resource allocation in the society rather than identifying who they are. The analogy that I like to use is think about going to a shopping mall with parking lots. And if parking lots or car parks are abundant, then there wouldn't be any issue. But then when car parks are not sufficient and people put red cones there and say, like, these are my parking spots, even though I'm not using them, sorry, go away. And I am just occupying uh, these empty spots and then taxing these uh, underutilized resources and then plow back to the society, let's say streamline housing provision uh, and uh, support the construction industry, uh, pouring funding into affordable units, then make that makes more sense about uh, taxing unutilized units and then reinvest uh, into the society much better than identifying who are the people putting those red cones there and not using it. Right. Which, of course, they've done because obviously vacancy vacancy taxes now exist in, in, in a lot of spaces. I, I've been I've been reading about something I, I couldn't I, I don't fully grasp it. But the the idea that that sometimes foreign investment is needed. Um, when it comes to building things like rentals, for instance, that sometimes you, you want foreign investment coming in. And obviously, people here looking to get investment to build things have to be quite uh, have to be careful because of some of these some of these policies now in place. It's not so much about um, and I in the first place, the foreign um, uh, the ban on foreign buyers, that uh, prohibition excludes investment in constructing multifamily units for rental okay. purposes. Gotcha. So they are not part of being prohibited. Mm -hmm. uh, but then welcoming foreign capital to help provide or to supply capital into the provision of rental units, that's always welcome. Because in the first place, even looking at the rental housing market in Canada, throughout Canada, it is very tight as well. Diana Mock is a professor, an associate professor at Western University who studies the economics of real estate. We've been talking about the federal government over the weekend announcing they're going to extend the foreign home buyers ban, uh, which has it's quite quite uh, specific on what it does, but it essentially uh, doesn't allow anyone who uh, is not Canadian or a permanent resident. Uh, there's a few other exceptions for buying properties in Canada, specifically in bigger places. It doesn't, it excludes uh, re recreational properties like vacation properties and so on. Um, Diana, when you look at the things that have been announced recently, uh, we obviously have the concern about uh, about 
international students that's been talked about. Now we have the foreign buyers ban extended as well. Um, it's not that I, it's not that I don't think these things won't work at all, but the only slippery slope I look at and worry about is that it feels like we're starting to blame outsiders for something that is a unique, not a uniquely Canadian problem, but it's a Canadian problem. We didn't build enough, period, for, for our population. And here we are. I feel the same way. Whenever there's a problem, we just like to identify the easily identifiable, circle them, isolate them, and put the name culprit on them. Um, and even for international students, well, in the first place, the prohibition uh, for foreigners to purchase homes actually excludes students to some right. extent, international students to some extent. But now the new policy about capping international students, it's another new policy to look at housing market, most likely in terms of the rental housing market but again it is identifying a particular group and isolate them right so i suppose the answer in all of this is just to build more how i mean this is the most obvious answer to this dilemma but it's to build more housing right period the thing it's about housing market is we need a bird's eye view it's not just about price it's not just about rents it's about construction industry and how they feed into one another and by let's say trying to do something to lower house prices for owner occupied housing in fact it's actually discouraging the supply of new housing in the construction industry because house prices are coming down and in the long run the replenishment of the housing stock it's going to be lower than one what it normally is, and thereby housing price will just come back down in the long, uh, come back up again in the long run. So it's a feedback system that we cannot just isolate one policy and hopefully in the long run it will sh- solve the problem. It has to take into account of a big picture. I think one of the really difficult aspects of all this is trying to come to terms with the fact that a significant proportion of the Canadian population, for at least the near foreseeable future, are not going to be able to buy a home. And I think that's something that we really don't want to have to either admit to or or assess blame for. But here we are. Well... Uh, supply, I would say still supply is the first place to go. Um, increase the supply and also think about um, bringing in other stakeholders to think about what about construction cost and what about affordability through uh, subsidies and all those. So it's not just about identifying foreign buyers or international students and say, you know what, even however small this group is, let's try to isolate them, ban them and see if hopefully will bring down the house price or rent to some extent right because ultimately if it if it doesn't what we're, if it doesn't work like I mean, again i'm not completely opposed to these policies at times they have worked in certain places but if it doesn't work widely uh then what was the point well looking good politically perhaps well, yeah, I mean, that's, and therein lies the issue. I mean, you study the economics of, of real estate, not the politics of real estate, but I'm sure you're intimately familiar with both, right? Well, it's tied, it's the political economy. Housing yeah. is tied to every single tier of the government. Right. And, and, and you think this is an example because, you know, I suppose it depends on, on the cities themselves because you're mentioning it really applies made mostly to, 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 relatively major urban areas but you still don't feel like like this the federal government comes out and, and renews this for another two years or another two years beyond next year and you don't feel like they're talking to the province or talking to the cities uh, generally about this like you think this is unfortunately this is a bit of a policy in a silo because i know they're talking to each other about many other things I have a feeling that the the dialogue is just not transparent and clear enough or even consistent enough. Just to cite you an example coming from Ontario, um, when the announcement of extending the the ban on foreign 
home porches in Canada. Just shortly after that came uh, the mayor from Toronto about, uh, well, when the ban is lifted originally planned uh, after 2025, then the city is going to continue and tax foreign buyers 10% right. on the property. Uh, but then these two are contradictory in the sense that now that the government has extended, the Canadian government has extended the ban, what is the impact on the potential tax that the city would like to levy on? Right. So so if you take into consideration that the city of Toronto may have already been trying to factor some sort of tax into their budgetary process, then right, then this takes it away in one fell swoop. They need a different formula for sure. Right. Well, Diana, thank you so much. You are very welcome. 